you're going to want to open it to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. As you are grabbing your Bibles and open up, I want to make sure you know that Dave uh, has some CDs out here on the side. Uh, do that just because they are a gift to us and they encourage us. But if you're interested in that, they'll be on this side as you exit tonight. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Now, we're really starting a uh, slide down into some of Paul's theology here and some of, obviously, the theology of who God is that's going to run not just counter-American, but counter-human, okay? Because he's going to begin to tell us that suffering is okay. It's not a big deal, which that's not counter-American. That's counter-human. When you preach that message, a lot of time, really sanctimonious, self-righteous people will go, well, the American church is so soft and they don't want to suffer. Nobody wants to suffer. It's not like the church in Asia is lining up going, yeah, we'll do it. Okay, nobody wants to suffer. Everybody's against suffering. It's, it's the human condition. But I want you to see that there's some strange things that kind of go on here in Romans chapter 8, verse 18 and following. And, uh, but they are so powerful when we allow God to be who God is. Okay, one of the, one of the big problems that I feel a lot of us do, and, and I try to combat this every week in here and wherever I teach, is taking a notion of God, making God into our image and our wants and our needs, forming God how, how we want him to be, and then being disappointed when he's not God. Well, if you make up a God... And he's not God. Don't be mad. Uh, the, the power of the cross comes alive when we truly let God be God. And that sounds so simplistic and so evidential, but idolatry is so rampant in our hearts. We want to put up in heaven Santa Claus who's going to give us what we want, who's going to let us sit on his lap and smell his beard and give us hot chocolate and a candy cane. That's what we want God to be. We're going to show up in heaven one day and go, where's the candy cane, dude? Okay. But God has something so much bigger and wilder than anything we could imagine that when we'll let God be God and truly allow who he is to capture our hearts, that's when worship really begins to flow. That's when worship, you know, it doesn't matter if it's music. It doesn't matter if it's greeting people. It doesn't matter if you're hearing about the history of the Bible. You just are over, you're, you're just exploding with who this God is. Now watch how Paul kind of begins to show us this idea in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Now remember, Romans chapter 8 is stacking up like your favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Okay, it starts out with Paul saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his son in the form of sinful man. He accomplished our salvation. That's Romans chapter eight, verse one. And so you're going, yeah, no condemnation, awesome. Okay, and then it comes in and begins to say, you are God's children. Not only are you God's children, but you're God's sons. And, and, and we may hear that in our modern American context and go, oh, what about the girls? They're not sons. But when you get what Paul's trying to say. He's trying to say, you are God's honored offspring. You are, you have an inheritance. If you were here last week, we talked about that in Rome and the way that Paul was writing in Rome, you could adopt a kid with no rights. They just, they had no rights. They were just in your family. Or you could adopt a kid and they had full rights. And Paul is saying, you are adopted children with full rights. 
Jesus is the firstborn, but you get a part in the inheritance because you get a part in Jesus. So, I mean, eight, Romans 8, 1 is just stacking up like this, the best chapter in the Bible ever, okay? It starts out with, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, I like that part. You are adopted children of God. Love that part. You, you can call God daddy. That's Abba, Father. And you're like, oh, I love that part too. And you, have, you are adopted as children who have rights. You have an inheritance in Christ. And you're like, love this part. And then all of a sudden, right at the end of the text we looked at last week, Paul just starts throwing curveballs. And he says things like this. And we will reign with him if we suffer with him. And you're like, whoa, suffer. I heard that word. What? Is it? What? What? Who? If you suffer with him. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, watch what Paul says. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You may have a translation that says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth mentioning in the same breath as the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, this is a common theme in Paul. If you're gonna try to run from Romans because you don't like what it says, you're gonna run into it wherever you go. For example, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, these slight momentary affliction is, not, uh, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I want you to consider that in probably the strangest verse in the whole Bible, it's in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know who that was, wrote this, Jesus was made perfect by suffering. I want you to consider that for a minute. Jesus was made perfect by suffering. It says, look at this word because I want you to catch it. This momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. You see, for us and our human selves, we look at suffering and go, that should be avoided at all costs. Now, am I saying that you should leave here, run out in the road and wait for a truck to hit you? Okay, that is exactly what I'm saying. Please wait till I get a lawn chair and I'm sitting on the side of the road, okay? I want to see that, okay? No, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that in our time, in America, in the church in America today, we are defining suffering out of the world and saying God would never let anyone suffer. And all of a sudden, guess what that is? That's making God in your image. It's saying God acts the way you want him to act. All of a sudden, that's not God. You're worshiping an idol. And when he doesn't do what you think he's going to do, all of a sudden, you find out you've been worshiping sticks and stones. That there was no reality to anything. You see, Paul has this vision of suffering that goes a little bit beyond our human eyes. He says it's preparing us for an eternal weight. I love that phrase, an eternal weight of glory. Back in Romans chapter uh, 8, verse 18, he said he considers these sufferings at the present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, we have a real translation issue here. Some translations are going to say the glory that is to be revealed in us. You may have that. Some say 
to us. But the point of both of those ideas uh, is, is the idea that this revelation of glory is going to occur to us, in us, through us. It's not something that's going to be external. It's internal. Now, that may seem like a stretch because you're going, but that says to us. How can it be internal? It says, you're going to see as we continue in what Paul's writing, how he's talking about this kind of thing. Now, in verse 19 through 21, we've got to take these three verses together because they make one big point. Verse 19 says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that phrase. It was all last week, the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now go back to verse 19 and let's look at this. Number one, it says this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20 says, for the creation was subjected to futility. It's a powerful word, futility. And it's a word that Americans don't believe in. We don't believe anything is futile. We always believe Stanford could beat USC. We always believe in the David and Goliath. We were the David and Goliath. We took on England and whooped them, okay? They don't want none, except in 1812 when they came back and burned the White House. Then they wanted some. We ran them out, okay? So... We love the underdog. We love the fight. We, love, we hate the word futile because futile means no hope. It's, it's hopeless. You can't, there's nothing that can be done. And the first thing that you need to grasp is that Paul is saying that this creation, where we live, how we live, has been subjected to futility. It has been subjected to futility. You don't have to go any further than Genesis chapter 3 to see this. When, when God is cursing Adam, you may remember God pronounced curses over Adam, over Eve, and over the serpent, who is the devil. And when he pronounces his curse over Adam, do you remember what he says? He says this, cursed is the ground because of you. And you shall toil over it, and by the sweat of your brow, Will you make it yield its fruit in season? You know, you can go down to Kroger and get all the food you want and all that kind of stuff because we in our modern times have forgotten one very essential truth. You know what it is? That we have to cut our existence out of this rock. We have to toil and strain to live here. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we really don't have any advantages in life. We got big brains and that's about it. Monkeys can kill us really easy. Lions. You ever? I went to the Fort Worth Zoo one time, and uh, of course in Fort Worth it's 197 degrees, so all the animals run and hide. It's hotter than Africa. That tells you how hot it is in Fort Worth. So I, I we go to this zoo, and I'm going to tell you guys a story about the Fort Worth Zoo at some point. The, one of those bizarre experiences of my life. This is not it. And uh, so I go, 
And I'm like a big cat guy. I love to see lions and all this kind of stuff because they're just, they're, it's just unbelievable God made that. It's just like, shut up. You did not do that. That's amazing. So I go in there. I'm looking for, the Fort Worth Zoo has this white tiger. And I'm like, oh, I want to see the white tiger. I want to see those two German guys. He'll make him disappear. But they weren't there. So <laughs> I go and, I, and I'm sitting there and I go down. And there's this, there's this big, like, it's a natural habitat zoo. And so I'm looking for the white tiger. I can't see him. And so they're like, well, there's a cave that he can go down into. And so you can go down there and there's little observation things so you can see him so you can bother him while he's sleeping because he loves that. So I go down there and I walk around and, and it's like this weird, like almost U-turn corner. And I never, I don't know who designed that. I guess they wanted to, to make it hard to get out if the, if the tiger ever got out so that he could at least grab some of the humans. So I don't know how they exactly made this bottleneck thing. But you walk down and I mean, you walk down and the instant you turn, the glass is right there. It's just, it's weird. I can't explain it to you really. But I go down, I turn, I turn this corner and that tiger's sitting right at the corner at the edge of the glass, like that far from me. I just turn around and go, "Ah!" okay. And this thing was just sitting there looking at me going, you're so lucky there's this thing in front of me. I mean, this thing was enormous. And I'm thinking to myself, I could take it. Yeah, with a tank, I could take it. I mean, if you really look at the human being, this is what's so funny to me about evolution, is we should all be dead. How are we going to fight tyrannosaurs? Are you serious? A bird gets in my house and my wife freaks out, okay? (laughs) A bird is flying around and she's grabbing a pillow overhead going, ah, and running. I love a saber-toothed tiger. Are you serious? But this world is subjected to futility. Uh, It's amazing to me that you can sit down and study physics and the first laws of physics teach you the universe is dying. It's dying. The sun is burning out. The earth is running out. It's futile. You listen to some of the most profound philosophers. You listen to Nietzsche and Sartre and Kurt Cobain, and they're like, oh, it's all over. It's so bad. It's futile. We're so smart. We figured it out. Seriously? Seriously. And all the intelligentsia of the world are going, oh, they're so genius. Really amazing. I read it in the Bible and knew it before you guys did, jerks. (laughs) And it's, it's futile. It was not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, that's God, in case you're wondering. If you ever look at the dying world and want to know the cause, well, the reason is the sin of humanity, but the power behind it is God. There's an amazing thing about God, though. Only God can subject something to futility in hope. Are you seeing the contradiction in that sentence? Anybody caught that yet? Did you catch that when you read it? Because futility by definition means no hope. Futility by definition means a set of circumstances from which there is no escape. Futility by its definition means quit and lay down and die. It's over. This sentence doesn't make sense. And that's exactly why it does make sense. Because only God can subject 
something to futility in hope. Now, if you've been coming here long enough, I'm going to give you a point. This is top shelf cookies, okay? You got to get on the top shelf of these cookies. If you only been coming for a little bit, you're going to go, those, those cookies were too top shelf for me. I didn't get those. But you've been here a lot, you're going to get this. What I hope you see in that sentence, ready for this? Here's your fastball, is the gospel. I hope you see in that sentence, the gospel, that it was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. If you can get that sentence, you're going to understand the nature of the gospel. We've talked about original sin. Do you remember that? Being born as sinners, subjected futility. Are you with me now? Think of the law. How many times have we talked about the law? What was the law for? Was the law to give you an opportunity to be saved? No. The law came to reveal more sin. The law didn't come to save. The law came to show you how, ready, futile it was. How lost you were. How dead you were. How God-hating you were. The revelation of God before Christ is not pleasant because it was meant to bring within us the understanding of futility but then the gospel the cross of Christ the freedom the hope are you seeing this now this is powerful fundamental gospel imagery This whole universe is just one big image of the person and the work of God. Verse 21, that the creation itself, catch it, that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to decay and obtain the freedom, the glory of the children of God. Are you catching how this says creation is going to go through the exact same thing the children of God go through? The children of God are going to have redemption of their souls, the renewal of their lives, the resurrection of their bodies and the creation is going to have the exact same thing happen to it. Why? Because the physical world is a representation of a spiritual reality. The physical world is a physical representation of the spiritual reality. In the Psalms, in Psalm 102 verses 25 and 26, the psalmist is extolling who God is. And he says, of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands, but they will perish and you will remain. You are the everlasting God. They will all wear out like a garment and you will change them like a robe and they will pass away. You see, you need to see the gospel as going beyond you don't go to hell. Honestly, we need it. We need to get a bigger picture of what the gospel is than just we're not going to hell. The gospel is the renewal of everything from the five year old little kid who really does get there a sinner and repents to the son itself. It is the renewal of all things. Verse 22 tries to give us a bigger picture, and he says this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, this is not the first time childbirth is used 
to explain the coming kingdom. Jesus uses it in John chapter 16, verse 20. Now, this is in the upper room. If you remember this, this part of the, the, the Jesus crucifixion story. He's in the upper room. Judas is left. He's just talking to the disciples now. And, and technically, in this passage I'm about to read to you, Jesus is talking about how he's going to die and they're all going to be sad, but then he's coming back. But I want you to see the childbirth understanding here. It says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And next verse. And there you go. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. You see, what Jesus is trying to say here is this. Hey, you're going to be sad and you're going to have anguish and pain, but it's going to turn to joy. Just like when a woman gives birth, there is pain and anguish, but at the end there is joy. Guess what? If you are really catching your Bible stories here, if you're remembering the felt board, we've talked about the creation being subjected to futility. Where did that come into play? God curses Adam. What does he say? By the sweat of your brow, you shall cut a living from this rock. Do you remember what he said to Eve? I shall greatly increase your pain in childbearing. You think God, when he was subjecting the world to futility, was also saying, guess what? I'm giving you a physical picture of what it's going to be like. It's going to be hard, and it's going to be awful, and there's going to be suffering, but I'm doing it for a reason. I'm doing it for a purpose. The creation gets this. The creation understands the purpose. It's been groaning together. It's been eagerly awaiting. And Paul says all this should be true of us too. In verse 23 he says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, he's saying the creation's groaning, but he says, so are you. He says, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit, as he will say in the Corinthians, is the deposit of the things to come. It is the hope. It is the the light at the end of the tunnel of darkness. He uses groaning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to talk about the resurrection of the physical body. Now, again, you've you've got to catch this because we do it over and over and over again. He says this, but not only this creation, but but ourselves of first fruit of the spirits, grown inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. One of the most neglected ideas about what heaven's going to be like in the American church, and I don't know why it's disappeared. Well, I've got one idea, but I'm not going to tell you because it's way too technical, is that is the idea of the resurrection, The resurrection from the dead. Go and read what Jesus said about the kingdom of heaven, and he talks about the resurrection from the dead. Paul, in his most famous statements about the gospel and about Christ, says, not only that I have, uh, not have I taken a hold of it, but I press on to take that for which Christ Jesus is taking hold of me, that I might obtain the resurrection from the dead. 
You see, we watch too many Bugs Bunny cartoons and let them set our theology. And our idea of heaven is sitting on a cloud with a little halo forever spirits. You will be in a physical body on a physical earth forever. The resurrection from the dead. Now, I know you're saying to yourself, oh, that sounds horrible. I can't take that. But that's because the only life that you're thinking about has been subjected to futility. I want you to imagine living on earth where everything is perfect. And every relationship is perfect. And there are no cats. I had somebody one time say to me, so what are we going to do forever? Just sit around? I said, no, we're going to be perfect. You can't even conceive of that. You can't even begin to believe that. Can you? The reason I say this to you, that it's so important to remember the resurrection from the dead, the redemption of the physical body, is specifically because of this link to the spiritual. You see, what God's trying to say to you is, yes, there was the creation and the fall and the destruction of everything, but I'm bringing it all back. I'm working it all, and I want you to see that just as I've resurrected your souls, I'm gonna resurrect your bodies. You're gonna see the power and the extent of the salvation offered to you in Christ. It's not just about you not going to hell. It's about you being able to look back five billion years from now and go, that momentary suffering was not worth mentioning compared to the weight of glory that I see now. Are you with me? Amazing stuff. The only thing the Bible could... The only thing the biblical authors could say to really put it in perspective was no eye has seen, no ear has heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Are you with me now? You're going, I'll take some of that. And I'm with you. I'm with you. So the question we have to begin to ask ourselves and really deal with because it's one of the most asked questions If you're dealing with somebody who's really trying to understand God or someone who's just really obstinate about who God is, the question that they ask is, well, then why, if there's God and he's good and he's awesome, why is there death and disease and war and all these ugly, horrible things that are going on in the world? If, if, if your God is so loving and kind, how could he let babies be molested and die? If your God is so great, how come my mom died when I was four? If your God's so awesome, how come this or that or any of the suffering in the world? You've asked the question. I've asked the question. The seeker asked the question. The hater asked the question. Why suffering? Why? And again... The idea that Paul tries to bring across to us is this. Look at verse 24. He says, for in this hope we were saved. Get ready. Here comes the answer, but you're not going to like it. Just like when you asked your mom if you could spend the night on top of the roof. 
Nobody else did that? I thought it was a good idea. I thought, I thought if burglars come, I'll just jump on them. She didn't think it was a good idea. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see that? You know, there's sometimes you just run into brick walls in Scripture. There's just sometimes that you run into stuff that God goes, I'm taking you this far and no further. I'm not going to tell you everything yet. And you're just going to have to stop. And right now what God says is this. If you see who Christ is, and like in Romans chapter 5, if you get that all my love for you was displayed in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. While we hated God, he took on our sins. You remember the Romans chapter 5 verses. When you hated God, when you were his enemies, when you were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. If you can grasp that and you can see the Holy Spirit in you, beginning to to move in you and calling you to holiness. If you can begin to see the enmity the world has toward Christianity, just because you say, I believe Jesus is the Lord. I hate you, kill you. If you can just see that, then you can see the hope that I'm placing before you. That in the end, this suffering is going to be a blip. It's not to matter. It's not going to matter. Can you even believe that now? You see, this is the deep end of the pool. Most Christians really content to splash around in the kiddie pool. There's a problem with the kiddie pool. Kids pee in it. <laughs> it's warm for a reason. You don't want to sit in the kiddie pool. You want to get out of the kiddie pool. Get in the big pool. People pee in the big pool, but it's a lot more diffused. (laughs) I'm throwing you in the deep end right here. Let me tell you, I've got some ugly stuff. I got some ugly stuff. You've got, some of you in here have got uglier stuff. There's no one in here who doesn't have a story. A story of suffering, of pain, of this or that. And the question is, can we begin to look at the cross event and say, that is me, that one day this will mean nothing. Are you with me now? You see, some of us look at our pain and we say, no way, I'll never let it go. I I can't. You may not say that out loud. It may be a a thought in the back of your mind, but the truth is you worship your victimhood. Am I saying there's not hurt and you don't need to work through it? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm telling you the cross is bigger. Redemption is bigger. And if we can't grasp, follow me here. Because all this is going to boil in together here. If you can't grasp that God can take suffering and redeem it, then how is is God going to take 
what's behind suffering, sin, and redeem it. Sin is the cause of suffering. Sin is the reason the world is in chaos and pain and war and famine. It's sin. Physical suffering is a manifestation of a spiritual reality. What is God trying to teach us through suffering? That the heart of humanity is wicked without him. And if God can't make suffering make sense, how is he going to tell you he can take care of sin? We're a lot of times really willing for God to take sin from us because we believe it's theoretical. Yeah, sin, I mess up, blah, 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 blah. Not really wanting to believe that sinfulness is a reality of the heart. And the reality of the heart, God has used to make a reality in the world. As C.S. Lewis would say, pain is the megaphone God uses to get to a deaf world. When there is no more sin, when the kingdom has come and those who are not in Christ have been punished and the only ones left are those who have been redeemed in Christ, then physical pain disappears. Do you notice the promises of Jesus in Revelation? What does he say? And no longer shall there be death or sickness or pain or tears for I shall wipe them all away. Behold, I am making all things new. Why can he do that then, but not now? If your God's so powerful, how come there's still suffering in the world? Because the world will not bow to him. That's why. You want it soft or do you want it hard? Here it is soft. God is using suffering for the good of his people. That's next week. You want it hard? God is teaching his enemies what hell's going to be like while there's time. Did you like that sentence? Didn't think so. Verse 24 and 5, this hope, this is what's missing from today's Christianity. Hope. This is what's missing. Because we don't like to look stupid. We don't like to get taken. We don't like to be suckers. We like to be cynics. To say we really didn't believe, eh, I thought it might mess up. I thought Jesus, the old Jesus thing might work out. So I kept going to church just to keep my bets, right? And we look at people who get taken and we say they're stupid. They weren't thinking. They wouldn't think it through. This is what people say about Christians. You're Bill Mars who say, yes, I was a Christian. I believed in the Bible until I graduated from sixth grade. Things like that. People who call Christians idiots. They're stupid, they're weak, they need a crutch. We don't like being called those things. It's scary, what if they're right? What if we are being duped? Let me ask you something. Is is the, the soldier who fights not knowing how the rest of the battle is going, is he a fool? Is the soldier who fights on regardless of what he sees, regardless of what he thinks, who fights on, not knowing what's happening, is he a fool or is he someone we would want to emulate? I don't want to use the word hero because it might go too far. When I say the word D-Day, what do you think of? You think of Normandy. 
Actually, D-Day is a term the military uses whenever they're going to launch an attack. D-Day is this day, but it's become associated with the Battle of Normandy. When I say D-Day, you think Normandy, and you see Saving Private Ryan, right? Uh, you see that. Unless you study history, what you, what you might not remember is there were five landing spots. There was Sword, Juno, Gold, Utah, and Omaha. And when you see D-Day in your head, when I say D-Day, you think Omaha. Because Gold, Sword, Juno were pretty easy, actually, as far as war goes. They just ran right in. Utah, a little bit harder, but Omaha is where it just got smacked. Did you know that? You think those guys on Omaha Beach were going, I wish I was over at Sword, man. Sword's easy. Can we go to Sword? Oh, the Canadians took Sword. (laughs) It's ridiculous. If you're Canadian, I'm not making fun of you. Just go play hockey. Did that come out? Is that wrong? I'm just annoying. You know, before we, we end here, I, w- I want to make one thing very clear because this whole, pas- this whole passage, this whole sermon could come across to you like a suck it up sermon, right? If I quit now, you'd leave and you'd go, suffering, I need to suck it up. Yes, I'll suck it up for a day, Okay. <laughs> But I want you to watch how Paul shifts the gears because this is going to lead us into one of the best and when you really read it out, for many of us, one of the worst verses in the whole Bible. Verse 26 and 27, listen to what he says. Likewise, there's a weird word because what's he just been talking about? How the creation suffers, how it's enslaved, how it's bondage, all this kind of thing. And now he's going, likewise. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You ever heard that word before? Hadn't he used it a couple of times before this? He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Follow me here in Paul's triple use of the word groaning. Number one, he says this. The creation groans to be released It groans for the revelation of the children of God. The children of God groan. They eagerly await their redemption of their bodies. Do you remember these two uses of the word groans? Now, follow this. The Spirit groans praying for you. to, To use a very vulgar metaphor, and by vulgar I mean common. I don't mean nasty, okay? Follow me here. Paul is saying, The creation groans. It's been enslaved. The believer groans. They've been enslaved. 
And to an extent, what he's trying to get us to see is that the spirit has been enslaved. Now, don't take that too far because you might go, God can't be enslaved. He's the spirit. I get you. But follow me here. What Paul's trying to link for us is just as powerfully as creation has been linked to futility. Are you with me? And it's pretty futile. I don't know if you've noticed. I don't know if you've noticed how good death is at its job. I don't know how well you know the law of entropy pretty much works. And just as powerfully as the Christian has been enslaved to a body of sin, yet sees it. And I'm willing to bet that you struggle with sin. And I'm willing to bet that you'll admit how powerful that enslavement is, will you? That just as powerfully the Spirit has been enslaved into praying for you and struggling for you. This verse is meant to show us, yes, there is suffering and it's bad, but I want you to see who I am through this and how powerfully I am on your side. How powerfully I am on your side. Are you with me? The Romans 8 is one of the best chapters in the Bible. It's just we have to let God be who God is. We have to step back and kind of go, you enslave the world to sin and suffering. And you're enslaving me to righteousness and praise your name. Because I see the power of what you do. I want us just to take a few seconds and pray. Just that truly we would be willing to submit ourselves to the power of of our God and Savior. We would take just a moment to to truly grasp the depth of the salvation, the the redemption that is waiting for those who believe. Dave's going to lead us in a worship course in a moment. And uh, you can stand, you can sit, you can do whatever you need to do, but I pray that your heart now will both be needy and thankful to acknowledge the power of the Spirit that prays for you, even when you don't know how to pray. But also the amazing power of the God who, as we've already learned, works all things according to the counsel of his purpose. The Spirit prays for us according to the purpose of God. And let us thank him for it.